0: Alright. There we go, that's it. Now you hear it. (laughs) You've heard this before. Um, I'm really excited by this mic being off the mount. Like, I can walk around while I'm talking. I'm normally in a booth, like, I'm hunched over sitting down. But this way, I got, like, freedom of movement. Like, think of all the possibilities. What if I stood like this? That would totally change the experience. Whole new perspective on the text, right? There's a little bit of confusion from people when uh, when we announced this. It was as though people were surprised that like after like eighty episodes being like live streamed and online, people weren't expecting me to pop up in Alameda to talk about Tyrion Lannister. Like that was surprising people somehow. I wanted this to be just a little thing for whoever's able to turn up, you know? I wanted this to be a little chill. This is an experiment. I've never done a live alt X podcast before. I still don't really know how to do a normal alt X podcast. Like, that was pretty much improvised on the fly. Um, So this is exciting for me, that it's different. Um, And the whole, like, announcing it, like, two days in advance, less than two days in advance... um, the fact that there was no explanation apart from, like, a three-minute clip of the Lannisters talking about Orton Lannister. Did you guys see that YouTube video? Like, I'll confess that that wasn't, like, the most professional way to announce the first-ever live show. Like, I'll I'll admit that. But, you know, there was this other YouTube channel. You probably haven't heard of it. In fact, I don't think we really say the name, but there is this YouTube channel called Shift Shift X... Yeah, no, I, I've never watched the videos. I assume it, it seems really wanky because it's really like short and like, all these like expensive-looking graphics. Like, why? It, it's too much. But that channel once described alt Swift X as, as, and I quote, uh, wildly inaccurate and frankly unprofessional. And that, that always angered me that characterization of UltraFX, but you know, I, I do have to admit that, you know, this show being run like it was, it's, it's maybe UltraFX has something in that. But the reason why this happened is that X, like, we try to be a little bit spontaneous, we try to be a little bit chaotic and improvised, that's kind of the fun of it. And, like, the best analogy I can think of is, like, Hogwarts. Like, it's possible that we've made a Harry Potter analogy on this show before, like, maybe once, maybe twice. But, like, Hogwarts has got all these, like, you know, it's got those staircases that change all the time. It's got these these fucking poltergeists, fucking poltergeists who are, like, like, you know, throwing the fucking mandrakes into the girls' bathroom or, like, whatever it is that happens in Harry Potter, and that makes it whimsical and exciting and magical to be in Hogwarts. But, like, it's also an occupational health and safety nightmare, right? Because you've got fourth graders falling down seven stories and you've got, you know... It's a nightmare. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that you've got to balance, like, pragmatic sanity against poltergeist and the fun thereof. And so that's the struggle of Alt Shift And maybe our other channel, Alt Shift maybe you could say that there's a dichotomy between the practical and the rational and the analytical and the more improvisational and the nonsensical. Maybe, maybe there's something in that. I wouldn't think about it too much. Um, I think we're going off on a tangent. We wouldn't want to do that on this show. So guys, how about we talk about Tyrion II, A Clash of Kings? Yeah. We got, we got one woo for literary analysis. <laughs> I think that is exactly how many woos we should get. Guys, thank you so much for coming. Let's talk about Tyrion. So, uh, the first line of this chapter... The first line of this chapter is that Janos Slint was a butcher's son, and he laughed like a man chopping meat. And I can think of, like, at least four interpretations of that first line. I had to think about this one. We don't normally prepare too much at Oxford X, but I had to think. Maybe to laugh like a man chopping meat means that the sound of your laughter sounds like the sound of meat being chopped. But then I've got a more positive interpretation, I think. Maybe it's just the idea that, like, butchers and men who chop meat have a characteristic mirthful laugh. Maybe butchers are a jolly folk, and so while they're chopping meat... They just have an ordinary happy laugh that's totally unrelated to the sound of me. That's what I like to think it is. But then I've got a third interpretation. And bear with me. Um, are you guys familiar with the concept of a dragon shout? Of a thum? Uh, well. Does the term fusrodah mean anything to you? <coughs> no, it doesn't. Well, what if a man's voice could be weaponized and used to impart force on an object? force without, man, without effort. <laughs> you got it, my man. What if one could fuss rodar and use that as a tool in butchery, right? So what if this butcher was using his laugh to chop meat? What if he was laughing with, with sufficient force to make pâté? What if that was the case? Wouldn't that be exciting? That's Alright, so that's option three. <laughs> Option four, the fourth interpretation of the first line, is that what if? What was number two? I've forgotten number two as well. <laughs> it was the it was the laugh, laugh. But what if four? What if Janos Slint is in this scene at this moment chopping me? Because this is a this is a dinner scene, all right. These two are having a meal together. It doesn't actually say that Janos is preparing the meal. Like maybe this is one of these like hipster restaurants or like those Japanese places where you cook. The, they bring out the raw meat and you do. Maybe that's what's happening here in the small hall of King's Landing, and maybe the reason why journal Slint laughs like a man chopping meat is because he's he's a man chopping meat. All right, you're not quite sold. I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I should like. I don't, are you recording? Oh yeah, this oh, is going on the podcast. Oh, okay. You're famous, <laughs> my man. Oh dope. I don't. I don't want to like. I don't know if I want to interact too oh, much. Oh, please do! Please okay, do. Sweet, sweet, sweet. I don't want. I don't want to cramp your style. Oh, yeah. please yeah. cramp all you like. <laughs> that's, the, that's the idea, right? Yeah. Just judge of weird, weird people saying things. Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're like the live the chat, team. but live. Yeah. Yeah. When we do the live streams, we get all these like helpful <laughs> text comments. All at wants. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking like, maybe we could like send him like text messages like as he goes through, so he can read. I don't know. I don't it. even know this guy. I, don't know. I never listened to it. Before. We just met. <laughs> so, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I just don't know. yeah, I was like, I was like how, "How did you get this venue?" Ben, ben is a hero. Yeah, he responded to a unsolicited message saying, "Hi, can I perform my secret podcast without telling anyone in your place? <laughs> and also, can you pretend to be me?" And Ben's like, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> wait, Let's do it. We're yeah. to be a champ, man. This Wednesday night, no. truly." Um, But, yeah, did you want to say something about General Slim? (laughs) Oh, no, I had nothing to talk about. I didn't (coughs) add to Westeros Hibachi Grills or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It it would probably be called... It would be called a Dracarys Grill or something, (laughs) right? It would be something valerian. But, um... But General Slint and Tyrion Lannister having a tea party is what's happening. This is well, actually, no. It's like a cute little romantic, like bro dinner. Actually, this is candle lit, so this is a nice, like, intimate conversation between General Slint and Tyrion. But Tyrion Lannister, being the Machiavellian dwarf that he is, has ulterior motives. Um, but we will getting into that. We wouldn't want to rush into this too fast or anything. But General Slint. Is built like a keg. Um, we're chucking some similes around. This, that's, that's two similes in four sentences for those who are keeping score, uh, life score of Martin's similes. And uh, Janos Lint says, "Hey, this wine, it's great." And Janos Slynt's like, "Oh, is this beer? Is this wine from the Arbor?" And Tyrion Lannister says, "No, no, no, it's Dornish." And that's like the first interaction that they have in the chapter. But the fact that Tyrion corrects Janos on his Wine is like the first hint that this is about Tyrion trying to control Janos and trying to dominate Janos. Um, He does these little subtle maneuvers like that over and over to to impart his will over Janos. Thank you so much. Nice. (laughs) That's definitely on the mic. That's on there. (laughs) Um, And so they're having their candle at dinner and they're having their beer, and, uh, and Janos is a frog faced man. Because of course you got you got to make your villains amphibian, right? Um, I think that's an MF Doom song, amphibian villain. <coughs> and um, and I've complained before about how like George Martin's villains tend to be ugly and the good guys pretty. I mean, a lot of the good guys are ugly too. Tyrion Lannister being the prime example. But like for for a, a series that like so famously like you know undermines the tropes man it's not fantasy man it's gritty realism like so often the, the, the bad guys are you know slobbering Vargo Hote or something you know which is like a Disney bad guy Vargo Hote is a Disney villain like with the lisp and the whole sort of like questionable um, demonization of the foreign other and all of that if you want to go down that path but I've complained before about that um, mm-hmm. and Tyrion notes that Janos Lint is not a man for sipping. He's a man for gulping large quantities of wine. Tyrion had made a note of that once. And Tyrion, I think, is very, like, self-satisfied in this chapter. Like, he's like, oh, look at me me fucking taking notes on people. I'm a real student of the human character. I'm a real fucking... uh, Who's the guy who knows the number plates? James Bourne? Like, he really thinks he's, like, he knows the things, Tyrion, here. Like, he's, he's very impressed with himself, which I think, is some, I think is a criticism that comes up a lot for me with Tyrion. He's very self-satisfied. Um, but we'll get into that later. So, like, they're talking, they're drinking, and Jan Lint says that, oh, this is a droll... T- You're very droll, Tyrion. You tell a droll tale. And droll's a word you don't hear often. Do you, do you guys want to go into the etymology corner? Yes. Oh, yeah. All right, welcome to the etymology corner. We're in the etymology corner, because we're about to learn where the word droll comes from. I've got an Animorphs book for anyone who can tell me where the word droll comes from. <laughs> is it? Uh, I know there's a French word droll, lettre droll. What does it mean? It means like uh, funny. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's, uh, there's another root that is uh, bowel movement. A bowel movement. A droll. droll. Really? The manifestation of it, the bowel movement. Manic. It's Germanic. It's a Germanic root. Well, both of those sound good to me. The creation. The idea of a bowel. <laughs> well, I mean, it's very onomatopoeic, right? I mean, your belly says "droll" when you're droll. hungry. But the one that I read says that "droll." I mean, this is just Google. Like, maybe this is wrong, but it said that the origin of the word "droll" is a Middle Dutch word meaning "imp." Tyrion Lannister's nickname is the imp. Like In is Dutch that a c- it's a Dutch word droll is a little poop. A little poop. A, a little right poop t- is a droll bringing it back to I wonder how that connects to like the little goblin-y impy character. I wonder if there's like a connection. Yeah, but I was referring to Dutch, the droll is oh, okay. a little, little poop. So that uh, Tyrion's a little poop. Tyrion is a little poop. I think that might be a joke that we just unveiled. Oh. Oh. Damn. That's some huh? serious. Fucking... Sure. You should post that on Reddit. You'll get a lot of karma. <laughs> it's all about the karma in these circles, man. I don't know if you're familiar no, with. I'm no, new. No, I'm new. No, I'm in. Oh, it's the redditor eat yeah. redditor like like dog eat dog world of uh, getting internet points by noticing things about etymology. <laughs> uh, it's it's for real. All right, so Tyrion's a little poop, and the little poop um, is uh, is continuing to sort of correct Janos on lots of little things. Like, Janos calls Tyrion Lord Tyrion, and Tyrion's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm no Lord, you can just call me Tyrion. So that at the same time puts Janos at ease by sort of like bringing Tyrion down and without, you know, waving his status around. But at the same time, Tyrion is again correcting Janos on something for like the second time. So I think again, he's trying to sort of, um, get an edge over Janos in some sense while at the same time easing him into a false sense of security by getting him drunk and getting him um, all all pleased with himself and you know Janos is dribbling wine down the front of his doublet because you know villains are messy villains are known for their poor like hand-eye coordination Um, and Tyrion is going easy on the wine um, but Janos Lint is not page two I think that was our fastest page do ever, guys. Yeah, yeah. Could we could we a sheet, like a summary sheet? Oh no. Oh no no no. We're going through a chapter, man. And I think we've got um I think we've got another voice in the podcast. And so The generals and Tyrion are talking, and then uh, we're reminded that, oh, you know, for the context, by the way, like, recall that, you know, this is near the start of the book. Tyrion Lannister has just been sent to King's Landing by his father Tywin to take up the position of hand and to try and basically sort out all the bullshit that's been happening. Tywin would just come and do that shit himself, um, but but Tyrion has been sent instead. In an uncharacteristic uh, gesture of trust. Uh, towards Tyrion from his father because Tywin is disturbed by the execution of Edard Stark, which just happened, which was terrible for the Lannisters because they lost their most important Stark hostage and their most useful chip in like the war in the war between the Starks and the Lannisters. Um, and you know Joffrey is a uh, is a murder murder boy um, who's just creating all fucking kinds of havoc. Um, and so was basically sending Tyrion down to deal with that shit uh, but the Tower of the Hand um, if you'll indulge another Harry Potter metaphor is basically the defense against the dark arts position which gets emptied as quickly as it gets filled in Hogwarts so Tyrion we hope will do better than Eddard um, who blundered into his own death, death in the same position oh by the way we've got a food description Ugh. guys Imagine you're reading a menu. You're sitting down in a fancy French cafe or like a Crownlander cafe, I guess. Like really really nice restaurant, the waiter comes and puts the napkin over your lap and like gives you a menu that is so fancy it doesn't even have price tags on it. And this is this is what it's got. It's got oxtail soup. Best part of the ox. Why eat any other part of the ox? All the nutrients are in the tail, right? That's where the good shit is. The texture, you know. That's where the shit is, at least. Summer greens tossed with pecans. You might think that's the nut. It's the bird. Pe... No, it's a toucan. <laughs> it's with toucans. <laughs> These are summer greens with toucans. Would you want any other season in your greens? <laughs> Fuck fall greens. Spring greens ain't nothing. Summer. Give me some red fennel, crumbled cheese. Are you gonna eat uncrumbled cheese? Are you gonna eat cheese without paying someone to crumble it for you? Like how poor do you think I am? I have like four industrial cheese crumblers like in my home, crumbling cheese 24 seven, like a tumble dryer. Just so that the moment that I need my cheese crumbled, I can have it as crumbled as I need immediately. We got the crumbled cheese. We got the hot crab pie. We got a spiced squash. We got quails drowned in butter. A torrent of butter, a tide, a biblical deluge of butter was used to submerge these quails. There's more butter than quails. It's amazing. This is an eight-dish meal, each with its own wine, and Tyrion Lannister has enjoyed this meal. Thank you for coming to Food Description Corner. And it just came with its own wine, and so jo- uh, Janos is getting real drunk, and, uh, and Tyrion brings up Janos' new appointment as the Lord of Harrenhal. Um, and Tyrion notes that Harrenhal is grim and huge and costly, and some would say cursed. So it's, a lot, it's actually a lot like the Hand of the King position, in that Harrenhal is um, not somewhere where people last long. You know about the Wents? You know House Went? There was, like, the, the previous owners of Harrenhal... Uh, there was reportedly some kind of like vampire situation where the woman like bathed in blood or something and like that pissed off the wrong person and now the wents are extinct. The strong's before that, I think. And so basically everyone who's held Harrenhal has died, and that includes our, our friend Vago Ho. Um so Harrenhall's a bad place. General Slint has just become in charge of it, and indeed he soon will vacate it. Uh, because of what Tyrion's about to do. But I think the reason why they're bringing up Harrenhal and how grim and dark it is in this moment is to foreshadow Arya's arrival at it. Because there's no point having, like, a dark, shadowy... Oh, oh, foreshadowing, because it's, it's shadowy. Um, but you've got to foreshadow that shit, because Arya's about to come up, and um, as soon as we see her walk towards Harrenhal, we're terrified by what we know about this cursed place. Um, but... Janos Slint, he hoots at the notion. Um, Janos is making all sorts of fucking sounds this chapter, actually, with with the meat chopping and everything. But he's uh, he hoots and he says that eh, I don't fear a pile of stone. I'm a bold man. You have to be bold to rise. So Janos Slint is really like a shining example of social mobility. You know, he's a butcher's son, he came from, from small circumstances, and he rose to be a lord of the largest castle in Westeros. You know, that's a great example of social mobility, which George Martin shits all over by making Janos the most just disreputable, disgusting example of a human being who immediately gets put in his place. So, uh, George R. Martin hates poor people, I guess. That's the only conclusion we can draw from the text, uh, but uh, but Janos is saying, "I'm a bold man. I'm a bold man, and a bold man drinks his fill." But anyway, so Tyrion's talking about like, all right, so who should be the commander of the city watch? Janos leader has gone down to be Lord of Harrenhal, and so someone's got to be the Lord Commander of the Gold Cloaks, the City Watch, in Janos' absence. And there's a whole bunch of suggestions that Janos has, including "Allah Dean. Um, and in my opinion, George Martin was really sort of winging it on, like, the naming things front with al I think he was, like, pulling syllables out of a hat. Like, the, the name al only comes up, like, four times in the whole book, probably. So if you're going to, like, skimp on one of the names, this is probably the one to do. And when you've got, like, 4,000 names, I guess some of them have to be shit. Um, this is one of those I think, but Janus is basically like yeah, Aladeem, he's a fucking like, top bloke mate, good man, my right arm he's my left arm, he's both my arms he's loyal, uh, he's, he's a top cunt and he should be the uh, captain of the City Watch and, um, and Tyrion's like, well no, actually I was thinking of getting this guy Jassalyn by water, Jacqueline? Jaceline, I think Jassalyn uh, and he's been captain of the Mudgate, and he's been, he was knighted on Pike. You know about, like, the Greyjoy Rebellion, when the Greyjoys, the previous time, they were like, hey, we should be king. And then, like, the the like, Avengers assembled and just, like, every badass in that period of Westerosi history assembled to kick his ass. Like, there was like, peak Barris and Selmy, there was peak Robert Baratheon fighting next to Edard Stark and Thoros of Myr and Jorah Mormont, and the Greyjoys What? no, not, no, that was on the other side. But <laughs> Like basically all the like, most fearsome fighters in Westeros all just got together and beat the shit out of the Iron Islands. And then just like a dozen years later Balon Greyjoy's like, hey, let's do that again. And that's how the War of the Five Kings happened. Balon Greyjoy is probably one of the stupidest leaders in, in Game of Thrones. But anyway, so um, Jaslyn Bywater was a veteran of that Greyjoy rebellion. Um, and he lost a hand on Pike which was then replaced by an Iron Hand. They call him Iron Hand for having one hand, which, you know, might foreshadow the whole Jamie Lannister situation with him being Golden Hand and whatnot. I reckon Jocelyn probably would have gotten a Golden Hand himself uh, were it not making narrative room for Jamie, right? Like, there's no, there aren't enough room for two Golden Hands in one story, so he's the Iron uh, Jocelyn Bywater. And... um And I find it interesting that Tyrion's argument here is basically that, oh, you know, Jocelyn, he seems like a good guy because he killed a lot of Greyjoys once, Um, which, like, is a weird system to determine, like, like, suitability to be the captain of the police. Like, why does fighting Greyjoy's good make you a worthy leader? Like, like surely it's mostly bureaucratic. Like, if you're the commander of the Gold cloaks, are you really like fighting dudes in jewels a lot, or are you like doing paperwork and like rooting out corruption within the force? I don't know what it's like day to day, but I'm just I'm just not so sure about his qualifications. But General Sneed is like, yeah, no, he, he's a queer dog is the description Janos gives of Jocelyn and says that, ah, you know, he's a cripple uh, and he's too rigid. He thinks over much of himself and his honour. So, as we sort of learn later, like, General Slint has this whole, like, corruption game going on within the Gold Cloaks, where he's, like, taking money, like, taking cuts out of all the flow of money, and he's actually in cooperation with Littlefinger in this whole sort of, like, corruption thing he's got going with General Slint. And I think by, you know, General saying that, oh, you know, Jaslyn's too rigid, too honourable, he's saying that, oh, Jaslyn wouldn't play my game of corruption and that's why I don't trust him. There's all, there's all this cronyism going on within the gold cloaks, and, you get, and we learn that the people who Janos is recommending are the people who are complicit in Janos's crimes, which strikes me as, like, a really realistic description of, like, how politics and institutions work in the real world. Like, when people get jobs, you know like, the charade of, like, job applications, right? Yeah, we're just going to go through this stack of papers. We're going to pick from the resumes based on merit. No, you're going to pick the guy who your mate says is good. Like, that's what happens. And if your mate happens to, you know, also be accepting of your habit of taking a cut of everyone's lunch money, then, like, all the better. Like, I think that's kind of how the real works, how the real world works. Um, and so I like that sort of description of it. But anyway, so, like, so, like, General says that Al-Adeen is feared. He's feared on the streets, and that's a good thing. That makes him a good leader, which is a very, like, Tywinian sort of uh, approach to leadership and power, right? Fear as a means of control. Um, And so it's interesting that Tyrion's opposed to that, but the thing is that, like, at the same time, Tyrion does use fear in this chapter. Like, as we're going to see in a minute, Tyrion starts... Threatening Janos and using his power to inflict fear and he starts kind of enjoying it so like one of the themes throughout Tyrion's arc is like this idea of the shadow of his father Tywin like Tyrion hates his father um, and everything he represents and yet he imitates him in so many ways like he says that I am you writ small um, and Tyrion I think in this chapter is behaving much like his father Tywin Uh, But what's discussed here is the issue where, like, you know when Janos Slint and the gold cloaks went out and killed a whole bunch of uh, children and babies in King's Landing, the bastard sons of Robert Baratheon? Um, Oh, audience participation. Who can tell me the name of the baby? And bonus points, the mother who was killed by the gold cloaks. Like, the specific name of the baby, the bastard baby... Who was killed under the orders of Cersei Lannister? There's the name of the baby, and in the sh- in the TV show, they also gave the mother a name. But like, you probably don't even know that. You- you're gonna hit yourself because it's a Baratheon bastard, and the name of it's his baby something Storm. Well, it it, it should be Storm. I I, I think as a crownlander, they call it Rivers. Because there's the It'll there's... Be Rivers. No, because then there's also that one that's, like, in the... That works in the brothel, but she's still alive. The thinking like Rockhopper I don't know that was <laughs> yeah, yeah oh yeah Obara Rockhopper Obara Rockhopper <laughs> sounds like someone's like fanfic it sounds like like some kind of like not oh. safe for work, work tumbler shit where it's yeah. like Obara Rockhopper no. and Tristane of the wilderness oh no I'm thinking of the the, the bastard that's in the uh, the eerie um, that's the one I'm thinking of Maya Stone Maya Stone yeah <laughs> Rock <Bar-a-rock. laughs> Rock <Bar-a-rock. laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna name my kid a Varro Rock yeah no I, I don't know I don't know Bar-a. Ba- oh Barra It's an infant Damn it bar, Yeah Barra Barra Man oh, you, you were that were so fucking laughing. close You oh, <laughs> were that close Look you were so close I'm going to give you an Animorphs book Yeah right. Is it the first one You've won the first ever <laughs> Official Old Swift X Clash of Kings abridged Animorphs prize Oh, I. You, You have a unique honour sir Congratulations Did you pick it up With a tissue <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> He doesn't know Where that's been Neither do I uh, They're from a Second hand bookshop it, it, oh, Yeah one of those Like shifty ones though Yeah it's the one where the, Oh yeah Has it got the flippy thing If you flip in the corner Does it make the animal no. Morph No No I just, just That's like a photo Of the whole cast uh, Yeah right That's rough That was a dark time In the 90s when, uh, <laughs> Oh man yeah. Oh, it's, look it's a it's a it's a dubious <laughs> honor but uh Gets congratulations it's it, six it will end with five such an ominous uh tagline Love it. Uh, I, I, don't, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys have been following but um we've done three episodes of animorphs of bridged as a as a spin-off from this show and um and, and, and I think in, in, in the last two years when we've done those three episodes, we've done a total of, like, 30 pages of the first book. Um, so I think by that rate, we'll have finished the whole 100-book series in, 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 by, like, 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 something very dark and distant. I don't know. Um, all right, so Barra and her mother. In the show, they named the mother Megan. Megan. Uh, but Barra and all these children were killed under the orders of Cersei Lannister. In the show, they in the show they made it Joffrey who killed the kids, um, which I guess was a way of like setting up Joffrey as like this horrible villainous dude. But um, also Joffrey didn't have the motive to do it, so it was a really weird change because in the books the reason why Cersei kills all these kids is that these kids are actual uh, children of Robert Baratheon and the whole seed is strong thing means that these bastard children have black hair which is the whole giveaway that makes Jon Aaron and Ned Stark realize that uh, Joffrey, Macella and Tommen aren't Robert's kids so that's, so that's part of why Cersei kills all these bastards is to cover up the fact that uh, her children uh, are not Robert's kids there's an actual rational reason for it whereas Joffrey just like wakes up one day and is like you know what I really want to murder some children, um, and so he does it, which I think is maybe a little over the top, even for Joffrey. Um, but General Slintier is the guy who actually carried out the deed. Um, he's the guy who ordered his gold clerks to go around and, and kill, purge all of these innocent children. Um, and General Slint says, "Well, you know." Uh, I don't ask questions, I just follow orders, and so does Al Adim, because Al is the guy who killed Barra. And General Slim is basically saying, like, oh, you know, Al Adim's a good bloke because he went and unquestionably murdered these children, um, which again is like a dubious qualification. And, and, you know, Tyrion is sitting there horrified, and while he thinks of the murder of all these people, he's thinking of Shay and of Taisha and of all the other women who have taken his coin and his seed in that order, is what Tyrion says. Um, And, you know, maybe it's fucked up that, like, Tyrion frames his sympathy for these dead people in terms of the women he's had sex with. Like, is that the only way he's able to experience sympathy and empathy for these murdered women is by thinking of the the people he loves? Like, I think you can unpack that if you want to get critical about it. But, you know, Slint's going on and saying, yeah, al Adim is a hard man for a hard job, good bloke. Sign him up, um, and Tyrion. Oh, and then they eat some cheese because, of, you know, this is a this is a dinner conversation, um, and uh, and he's saying, "Yeah, cheese, I love it. Gimme cheese, sharp cheese, sharp knife, cheese, cheese, cheese." And uh, Tyrion's like, "Enjoy it while you can," which, if Janos had any sense, like his hairs would be would be prickling up on his neck because um, because Janos is about to be exiled to the wall by Tyrion, um, and so this is slowly ratcheting up the menace uh Janos is too drunk to realize it but Tyrion is like gradually raising the stakes here uh and and working his way up to uh exiling Janos um and so and so then Tyrion asks Janos uh oh by the way who ordered you to go and kill those children that's what Tyrion's trying to work out. He doesn't know that it's Cersei, and then Janus is like, oh, Tyrion, I see what you're doing there, man. You're trying to get me drunk and get me to talk. I ain't that stupid." He he, he wags a wedge of cheese, which I think is a is a power move. Um, and then like he's like, "Yeah, no," and you know, Jonas is totally right. The Tyrion's pretty like transparent here, right? Like it's kind of a stock move to like you know. Um, get someone drunk to try and tell you a secret. It's like it, it's like the you know in the cinema, like the old stretch, then put the arm around. You know, it's like it's of that book. It's like of that level of subtlety. So even drunk General Flint is able to see through it, um, and uh, and so he's like, oh yeah, I'm not telling you. Um, and then they continue nibbling cheese. Um, and, and and you know the the luxury here, I think, is is very deliberately. Contrasting with what's going on in the war. So at this moment that you've got like Janos and Tyrion going like, hey, is your wine from the arbor or from Dorne? Hey, I prefer my cheese shop. Like at the same time, you've got Arya trudging through the war-torn riverlands where people are, you know, masher eddles being hung from across and all these horrible things are happening, people starving, you know, at, at Harrenhal, as we'll see soon. Um, and so, being reminded of the luxury that these people are enjoying at the same time is a very deliberate thing by Martin. Martin's constantly asking us to criticize and deconstruct, you know, the status and the hierarchy and the power struggles. This chapter is explicitly about power. Um, but Tyrion asks Janos about Lord Mormont, and Janos Lint is like, "I thought it was a lady Mormont, the one who beds with bears." Um, so he's referring to Mage Mormont, and you guys know about how like. Major Mormont is said to have sex with bears in the woods and like that low key might mean that she's actually hooking up with Tormund on the down low and like has all those kids. I love that idea that like the Mormont family is actually half wildling. And the idea that you know maybe even that'll come out and maybe when the wildlings start making peace with the north as inevitably has to happen with the White Walkers and everything Maybe the fact that there is a northern house that is already intermarried with wildlings, low-key, maybe that could come out, and that could be, like, a way of uniting the north with the wildlings. It's like a Sig- Sigourn Then, the Magnar of Then guy, who marries Alice Karstark and all that. Like, you know, on the down-low, all these, all these unifications are happening between wildlings and northmen. So it's cool if Major Mormont's a part of that. But anyway, they're trying to talk about Jor Mormont, uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Um... And Tyrion is saying that, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's a real shame that the Night's Watch doesn't get enough men up there. Real shame. Wouldn't it be great if, if, if some Janos was up on the wall instead of down here and he's slowly sort of laying the groundwork to chuck him up there? Uh, and Janos roars and says, there's small chance of that. He's hooting, he's roaring, he's, he's, he's off. His... And so uh, and life's, uh, but Tyrion says, no, life does take queer turns. For instance, Ned Stark never imagined that he'd get beheaded on the steps of Baylor sept. Um, so this is the next thing that Tyrion wants to work out. He wanted to work out who <coughs> ordered the, uh, the murder of all of those bastard children, and he wants to know whose dumb idea it was to kill Eddard Stark. Um, so uh, so Janus is like, well, it's pretty simple, like Joffrey said to do it. And Janos is like, well, why did you follow Joffrey's orders? He's 13 years old. And Janos is like, well, no, he's the king. He's the king. He's what, what you've got to do. Um, but you know, the, some of Janos' comments sort of implied that you know, there was something more going on here. And like, the theory, there's no confirmation, but the popular theory is that Littlefinger influenced Joffrey to order the uh, execution of Ned Stark. Because Littlefinger has the motive, right? Like, through the whole first book, he's been engineering this conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters. He has the most to gain by the death of Ned Stark. Um, so it's possible that Littlefinger's the real guy behind um, the execution. Um, but Tyrion sort of misses that. Tyrion doesn't think of that. And then Tyrion, in the middle of the cute candle dinner, says, um, sort of out of the blue, Tyrion says, ''Might I have a look at your spear?'' Um, which sounds like a proposition to me, um, but he's referring to Janos Lint's heraldry. The badge that fastens his cape is shaped like a spear, a bloody spear, um, which, is, which is in reference to the spear that was used to jab Ned Stark in the back in the Great Hall of Winterfell when the Gold Gloaks turned against Ned and imprisoned him. So it's this really like morbid, like horrifically disrespectful... Um, act that Janos has taken, the symbol of his betrayal and violence against Ned Stark, as his house heraldry, as he, you know he's now he's now being raised to the status of uh, of nobility, and he chooses as his symbol you know that um, it'd be like um, I don't suppose you guys follow Australian politics, but there was this great betrayal of a certain um, Ms. Gillard by a certain Mr. Rudd, and it would be as though you know Rudd took his prime ministerial heritage as like you know, a bloodied knife and, like, Ms. Gillard's head or something. But, um, you know, that would be funnier in Australia. Um... So, um... So, Tyrion sort of goes on the attack against Janos and says, you know, did did you drive the spear into Ned Stark or did you only give the command? Um, and then Janos realizes that he's being, like, outwardly criticized here. Um, and slams down his wine cup and says, are you drunk? And that reminds me of, like, you know that Stannis line where, you know, Stannis says, um, I am not entirely without mercy, thundered he who was notoriously without mercy. Um, I think it's like that when Slynn says, are you drunk? You know, he who is notoriously stinking fucking drunk right now. Um, but he says, are you drunk? And so... Slim says, who are you to chastise me like this? I am a member of the King's Council. I am the Lord of Harrenhal. How can you criticise me? Which is pretty fucking wild to me that, like, there was a time, and I suppose there still is, but, like, explicitly in this time, you know, you can, you can say that I'm right and you're wrong, because I'm a noble who has a fancy job and therefore my argument's better than yours like this is a time before like ad hominem was a fallacy like this was when you could say I'm right because I'm king and people were like yeah that works out like if he says 2 plus 2 equals 5 and he's the king then you know so it is so Janos starts hitting back against Tyrion and he's like "Oh, you know you're an imp you're a dwarf and then Tyrion says dwarf you should have stopped at imp um and the order of that seems odd to me, because, like, like, Janos calls Tyrion Imp, and then Tyrion's like, yeah, whatever. And then Tyrion... And then Janos calls him Dwarf, and then Tyrion gets mad. I would have thought Imp is the insulting one and Dwarf is, like, a description, but, like, whatever. So then Tyrion gets mad, and Tyrion responds with his own, like, ad hominem flag wafer. He's like, oh, I am Tyrion of House Lannister, and blah, blah, blah. So, like, you know, Tyrion thinks he's all smart and conniving and, and, and Machiavellian in this chapter, but, like... He fails to work out that Littlefinger was behind Ned Stark. He doesn't work out yet that Cersei ordered the death of the bastards. Despite all these manoeuvring, the only way that he actually manages to cow Janos slint is by saying, hey, look, my status is higher than yours. Like, this is how he shouts down Janos and wins this argument is saying, oh, you, you have that title, but I have this better title, which, which is really not that impressive from Tyrion. Um... So I don't know if Tyrion's quite as smart as he thinks he is. Um, but then, you know, he suggests that Janos is less smart than a sea slug, which um, is, you know, a pretty specific burn. That's, that's sort of the marine biology burn. Um, and, uh, and then Janos finally gets afraid. Janos only gets afraid when he realizes that, oh, wait, Tyrion really is, like, um, uh, royalty um, or near enough and uh, And then he gets afraid, and he starts begging, so Janos goes like like in one paragraph, from like you know rage and roaring and my honor down to like simpering, oh please don't take my children which um which is um Understandable, but then, oh, but then Tyrion's like, oh, you know, we're going to look after your kids. Like, we're, we're going to exile you, but hey, we're going to look after your kids. Your kids can be uh, squires, and if they serve well, they'll be knights. Let it not be said that House Lannister does not reward those who serve it. So Tyrion's got, like, a healthy dose of Lannister pride um, here, which is, like, in pretty stark contrast to, like, later uh, books when he's, like, outwardly wanting revenge against his family. Um... And, you know, what? what is the inciting incident that makes, like, Tyrion change his mind about whether House Lannister is so honourable or not? It, you know, does he suddenly take sympathy for the common folk? Does he suddenly start to, like, question, like, the hierarchical society in Westeros? No, it's because of, like, personal disputes between him and Tywin and him and Cersei. That's what changes Tyrion's mind. Um, so, again, I don't think Tyrion's all that honourable. I don't think Tyrion's all that impressive when he seems basically self-interested in relation to his relationship to House Lannister um, oh, and Tyrion also mentions that like it'll be up to the Slint kids to General Slint's sons to make a marriage for their sister which is a pretty wild responsibility to put on to Janos Slint's kids I think, that hey your dad's going to the wall and you'll never see him again and also you've got to marry your sister off, like, like that's a lot to fucking deal with as a teenager I don't know how old the kids are um, and Janos "Jowls quiver like mounds of suet." It, it, how do you pronounce it? Is it French? S- suet. Suet. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what suet is, but George Martin mentions a lot of mounds of it in in this series. <laughs> I think it's like pig fat. Does it come in mounds? I mean, it can. I think it should. Do they use it for like bird feed? Like you melt it down and you can use it for it's French like, fries. But you melt down pig fat for bird feed. You put seeds in it, and then it's a nice like <coughs> lump of like seedy bird feed that yeah okay so the birds are into the seeds not the pig fat they right. uh, <laughs> might be into the pig fat I hope they're not it's into America. the pig fat <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> America <laughs> <Yeah>. in America <laughs> well, the birds eat, eat, eat pig fat <laughs> they, eat so they swoop down and carry off entire <laughs> pigs some of your eagles probably would wouldn't they? those eagles are huge I think you're of vultures am I? yeah mm. eagles aren't that big oh okay Albatrosses maybe? They're the big weeks wingspan <laughs> fellas. How many albatrosses have you seen? Oh, all the time, mate. <laughs> it's been albatrosses from here to Boston, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> um, so. General Slint is being sent off to join the Night's Watch. He's being forcibly recruited into the into the Boy Scouts of, Well no, they're like the the Stonemasons. The Freemasons. Stonemasons is the Simpsons one. You know the Freemasons is like that like real life secret society. Um, and, like, now it's been reduced to a bunch of, like, old men in weird robes talking about how cool they used to be. Like, apparently that's what the Freemasons are like right now. Um, that's what the Night's Watch is like at this point. It's, about, it's a bunch of, like, old men who are trying to recapture their former glory and are having a pretty bad time of it. And Tyrion's like, congratulations, you're the newest member. Um, and, and Tyrion lets the oaf tremble a while after making these threats so Tyrion really is like explicitly like enjoying being cruel to Janos like, like, like I, I really feel less sympathetic to Tyrion the more I read this chapter like this is really like a power fantasy for Tyrion because like he doesn't need to do any of this he could have just sent Janos straight to the wall. And I mean, you know, admittedly he has this information-gathering motive trying to find out about Ned and, uh, and the bastards, but he didn't do a very good job of that. So, like, I, I, I'm not that impressed by Tyrion in this chapter. But anyway, they mention, like, where Janos where Slint's ship is going to go on the way to the wall. They're going to be stopping at Gulltown, Three Sisters, the Isle of Skargos, and Eastwatch by the Sea. Which is basically, like, a travel... Uh, plan of, like, the shittest, coldest, worst places in Westeros. Like, that really is, like, the grand tour of, like, the shitholes of the north. Um, because, I mean, Gulltown's okay, I guess, but, like, Three Sisters, isn't that the place where, like, the fish people live? Like, that's one of the minor locations where people have, like, webbed fingers and, like, there's a whole bunch of, like, um... Uh, who's the incestuous family and in It's Always Sunny Again? Oh, uh, the McPoyles. McPoyles. Like, the <laughs> McPoyles of Westeros live on this island. And then the next stop is Skargos, which is, you know, the yeah. unicorn, cannibal, wildling, like, fucking. I don't know why they're stopping there. Oh, come for me. Um, and, and then after Skargos, they're going to Eastwatch by the sea. And, you know, Castle Black is not a great place to be. But the best thing that Castle Black has going for it is that it isn't Eastwatch by the sea, um, which is like Castle Black, but colder. Um, and, of course, that's where the fucking wild, w- White Walkers break through in the show as well, isn't it? So, so really, this is, this is just the, the worst itinerary you could possibly come up with. Um, mm-hmm. And and Tyrion says, and send my regards to Lord Commander Mormont. Because remember that Tyrion met Gil Mormont and felt a lot of sympathy for the Night's Watch and their plight. Um, Which I think comes down to like a sort of fraternity among outcasts. Because Tyrion feels like, you know, the imp, the unloved, the one who's like chucked out of society. And that's what the Night's Watch are. They are like the refuse of Westeros. Anyone who you can't think of something to do with, you send to the wall. And I think Tyrion feels sympathy uh, with those people. Um, and, then, and then once Janos realises that, um, that he's not about to be killed he's just about to be exiled uh, colour returns to his face J- Janos Slint is like a fucking mood ring in this chapter he's constantly changing colour he went beet red a moment ago and when he was drunk he was like purple and he, and you know he's hooting and roaring and jiggling and wagging, <laughs> jiggling and wagging mounds of suet. Like he's a very expressive <laughs> character. He really feels like a Disney character. Actually, the more I think of Janos <laughs> Slint, there are some pretty good pictures online of like Game of Thrones if it was Disney. And um, I think Janos Slint would work really well into that series. Um, and then Janos is like, "Well, hmm, sir, hump for humph You know, you might want to send me to the wall, but I got friends in high places. Janos Slint has a good many friends." Um, you, you know when you say your full name in the third person that you're really trying to get get a point across? We shall see what Joffrey has to say about this. I've got a 13-year-old psychopath on my side. What have you got, huh? Perhaps it will be you on the wall. Um, and so just as Janos is, you know, oh, the, the fight's really starting now, he opens up the door and there's Jassil and Bywater and six gold cloaks standing there to esc- escort Janos to the wall. Um... So Tyrion has anticipated the whole thing. Um, and so Jannus is trapped. Um, so Jasselin Bywater is described as um, as tall, uh, lantern-jawed, which is a really odd description to, to have a jaw like a lantern. I'm imagining, like, an anglerfish situation with, like, the light to, like, draw in prey. Um, I don't know if Jasselin has, like a, like, a baleen situation, if he's, like, a krill... Sort of a guy i don't I don't know, but he's he's a dude he's got a black breastplate and a gold cloak, and on his right wrist he he has an iron hand um, it's really wild these early books because you get introduced to all of these characters who like are about to die down the line, like you know janos uh, so like Jocelyn Bywater dies on the Blackwater uh, you know janos we know later gets executed by John. Uh, Aladim is about to get thrown off to the ship on uh, thrown off the ship on the way to the wall. Like it's basically like a. It, 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 it's like you know those like college um, yearbooks where like you look through the faces of all the people you went to college with and you go, oh that guy is is you know in a, dead somewhere and that guy oh I heard he you know moved to to you know it, it's like that when you go through all of these old characters and you see. Um, where they are now compared to where they were back then. You get nostalgic seeing this old stuff. Um, but anyway, so they're sending Janos to the Night's Watch and uh, Tyrion mentions uh, that when Al-A-Dim, yeah, when ardim goes north uh, it would be a real shame if al Adim was uh, swept overboard and if he died on the way there. And Jocelyn says, oh yes, those northern waters are very stormy, my lord. Um, which is interesting because Jaslyn Bywater here is, is unflinchingly willing to be complicit in murder. He's totally willing to kill al adim And Jaslyn Bywater was meant to be the honourable one. He was meant to be the rigidly honourable like following the rules guy. Um, so I don't know if that says that like his reputation is wrong or if just his standards of corruption are, um, are poor but like still better than like General Lentz's standards. Um, it's a race to the bottom in the gold cloaks. But, um, but then Jaslyn heads off and takes Janoslin with him, and Tyrion sits alone sipping at his wine, feeling satisfied with himself, um, even though all he really did was use his position to get rid of Janos, which is, you know... And then Varys comes in. And Varys in the books is a very, like, different character in terms of his presence compared to the show. Um, Varys comes gliding in, Wearing flowing lavender robes that match his smell, he's much more theatrical um, in the books, and um, and he's an actor, and and he's a master of disguise, which they don't really do at all in the show. But I think that's one of the fun aspects of Varys is that he literally has like multiple identities that he dresses up as for various purposes, which like relates to his whole conspiracy with like Illyrio and the Blackfires and everything. Like that makes his character actually. Represent his motives and his ideology in a really interesting way. Whereas in the show, he's mostly just like, Yes, I am sinister. You can tell because I'm bald and I'm, you know, standing in the shadows. Like, it's pretty, like, overt. And I suppose they have to because otherwise, show watchers will just be confused when people do, um, you know, subtler things, but, you know, whatever. Um, So, so. Varus says like, oh, you know, congratulations Tyrion, you did such a good job of dealing with Janos Slint. sweetly done, and then Tyrion says, oh, why, is my, why do I have such a bitter taste in my mouth uh, I threw Alardim into the sea and I'm tempted to do the same with you and then Varus says, you might be disappointed by the result of throwing me in water because the storms come and go, the waves crash overhead, the big fish eat the little fish, and I keep on paddling which is such a great line because like it's self-effacing like it's it's bringing himself down by saying that oh you know i'm just a little paddler in the sea i'm just doing my own thing i'm just you know (laughs) sitting with my water wings and but at the same time it's also like a threat because it's saying like well you might try and come at me but like everyone else who's ever come at anyone is dead and i'm still here like Varys has been around in king's landing for a long ass time now and he seems untouchable. So Varys is saying that, you know, I'm just this dude, but he's also saying, like, there's a reason I'm here and all these others aren't. There's a reason I've survived and endured. Um, and then they talk about grapes. And then they talk about, like, uh, who killed the bastards in the brothel, and uh, and and finally Tyrion sort of realises that it was Cersei who did that. Um, and, and Varys when he acknowledges this, looks so grief-stricken that he looks close to tears. So he has this, like, theatrical nature about him, like a high school drama teacher, which I think is really sort of, like, fun and expressive. Um, the the books as a whole are, are much more sort of flamboyant than the show is, like, especially the costumery. Like, I love Renly's, like green, emerald green uh, enameled armour and his long hair and like everyone's appearance is very sort of (laughs) colorful and cartoony which you know, it it runs the risk of being like silly um Yeah, he's a rainbow guard. Yeah, I love his rainbow guard because Renly's Kingsguard in the books has the seven different guys each wearing a different colored cloak, which is so wonderful. I mean, you know, it's questionable in terms of, like, the one gay king having a rainbow guard. Like, what are you telling us, George? Um, But, yeah, that is fun. Um, And even just, like, the history of what the rainbow guard does in terms of, like, you know, Loras kills two of them. Like, holy fuck. Like, what kind of Kingsguard have you got when they're killing each other? Um, Renly's Kingship was a clusterfuck. We'll have to do a video on that. Or some other channel will have to do a video on that. Um, Wouldn't know who. And then, you know, Tyrion just feels frustrated by the whole thing. Damn you, damn her, I'm going to start my own handship, um, blackjack cookers, etc. And um, he, he feels frustrated by having made a mama's show of justice. So Tyrion here actually feels like he has a sense of justice. Like, on the one hand, he's trying to be, like, Machiavellian and just, like, doing what he has to to survive. But he's also trying to do the right thing, sensibly, to, like, some extent. And I'm a bit sceptical of, like, the whole justice thing, to be honest, at least in terms of, like, Tyrion's arc. Because, like, his impulses of justice sort of get transformed into this burning hatred of his own family and of, like, Westeros in general. Like, the things he wants to do to his sister by the fifth book are, like, horrific. He wants to murder and destroy his his family and and, and Westeros, you know, by setting young Griff on Westeros. Tyrion's sense of, like, justice gets sort of transformed into this violent, horrible, awful, retributive force, which I think happens in the real world as well. Like, the, I think that urge of justice... Uh, just hurts more people sometimes. Um, so Tyrion says, tell me everything. Lord Varys, I want to know everything that you know. And Varys has the perfect answer, which is, um, that might take rather a long time, because I know quite a lot. Have you guys read The Hitchhiker's Guide? Nope. saw the movie. So in, I think, like the third book, there's this... Tangent about how um, this guy in a criminal trial is given a truth serum so that he tells the truth about his crime, uh, but they accidentally give him too large a dose of truth serum far, far too large. And this poor, poor man ends up telling the whole truth all of the truth the truths of the cosmos and life and everything and so he just speaks there's just this torrent of just these existential truths just comes out of this man and everyone around him is just so blown away just horrified they end up they end up building like this bunker around him and soundproofing it So just fences and moats and crocodiles and armed guards and just to protect everyone from the truth and he just keeps going for years and years he just you get the meaning of life and everything that's ever been known, he just talks and talks. And then, they, and then they go and visit the guy at the end of one of the books and they're like, man, so like... And they, and they find that he's silent because apparently he's done. He's finished with the truth. And they ask him, like, what was it? What is the truth of the universe? What's the meaning of life? And then he says, oh, I don't really remember at all, really, except the, like there was something about frogs, and i like I'll never look at frogs the same way because they're just fucking wild, man like that, and that's like the end of the book that's um, not super related to this chapter I just like it um, so they're talking about, like, why did Cersei want to go kill the bastards? What threat could these random poor bastards of Robert Baratheon pose? Um, Varys asks, "What threat could she pose, Tyrion?" And Tyrion says, eh, "I guess Cersei just wanted to kill Robert's kids." So Varys here is really leading Tyrion to realize that, "Hey, the reason why Cersei killed these kids is to cover up the fact that Robert's bastards have black hair, unlike Cersei's kids. Cersei's covering her ass, um, but Tyrion doesn't realize it." So I wonder if Tyr- i wonder if Varys is almost trying to like recruit Tyrion as an ally here, because like Varys and Tyrion could be working together, and, you know, later on they do as part of, like, Illyrio's conspiracy, but Varys doesn't welcome Tyrion into the fold here. Varys totally could have said, hey, yo, this is what's going on, but he doesn't. Uh, so whether that's because Varys doesn't, like, trust Tyrion, or just doesn't think Tyrion is useful enough, we don't know. Um, Varys, as ever, is um, opaque. Um, and then Tyrion thinks about the death of this, of this poor bastard's um, prostitute mother, and then... And then he thinks, and then he thinks of her uh, as like Shay and like Taisha, and he thinks, can a whore truly love anyone? I wonder. Because Tyrion has some complicated attitudes to women. Um, of course, like, being founded in, like, his experience with Tysha, you know, falling in love and getting married and finding out that she was hired and then she wasn't hired and Tywin sleeping with Shay and, like, all of the daddy issues that go back to Tytos. Like, th- this is, like, intergenerational daddy prostitute issues. Like, this is some deep-set shit um, for Tyrion. Very Freudian what with the what with the father slaying and the, and the mother complicated. Um, and that continues into dance with, you know, the the where do whores go meme, which, which a lot of people in the Game of Thrones community are like, guys, what's the answer? Where do whores go? As if, like, no, it's rhetorical. It's rhetorical. Look it up. Um, so... He thinks about Shay, and Shay is, of course, a really complicated character. Shay Shay's all the more confusing because I think she's quite different in the shows in the show compared to the books. Um, we need to do a proper analysis of her. But like the question of like of like is Shay does Shay really love Tyrion? Um, uh, is, is is the whole loyal? Um, that's the question that is like at the heart of um, Tyrion. And I think you know Tyrion wants to see it as like this. Simplistic dichotomy of Shay is either like good and loyal and loving or duplicitous and evil. Um, but I think it's more likely that his treatment of Shay affects her attitudes towards Tyrion. Throughout the book, because he mentions that he's got Shay set up in this nice um, manse with these luxuries and servants, and but Shay's frustrated because she wants to be with Tyrion and not in this manse. Um, but Tyrion says that, "Oh, the best way you can serve me is between the sheets. So you just stay there, huh?" Um, so I think it's possible that you know Shay's betrayal of Tyrion perhaps has its roots in his treatment of her, um, but that's that's a whole other thing. Um, And so, yeah, and so again, Varys tries to lead Tyrion into realizing a truth. They talk about the execution of Ned Stark, um, and Tyrion says, well, we have my nephew Joffrey to thank for that. Um, But Varys says, well, they carried out the order almost as if they had expected it. So that line is sort of one of the big hints that maybe Littlefinger had planted the seeds for Joffrey to order the death of Ned, um, which, again, is never confirmed. But Varys is really trying to lead Tyrion into working shit out, like a very patient maths tutor, but the kid just keeps on forgetting to carry the one. Um, and so Varys says that Tyrion, like you're all set. Like now that you've installed Jocelyn Bywater in, on, in the City Watch, you've got six thousand dudes on your side. Um, with that force, you should be able to have more leverage to prevent Joffrey from being such a such a terror. Um, and there are the Lannister guardsmen and whatever. Um, and um, Varys says that Jocelyn will be courageous, honorable, obedient, and most grateful to whom, I wonder, Tyrion responds. So, Tyrion figures that Justin Bywater uh, is in Varys' pocket, to some extent. Um, So, even the purportedly honourable guy is corrupt and serving someone else. And then they talk about Varys' motivations. He says he serves the realm, while we know that in actual fact, Varys is, like, planning to have Viserys attack Westeros with Dothraki screamers before getting young Griff to come in, possibly marry Daenerys, and then sweep up and become king. Like, you, you know, Varys has this whole other thing going on. And yet here he is saying, I serve the realm. Um, and then they talk about this riddle. Power is a curious thing, my lord. Um, and there was this riddle from the previous chapter where Varys is asking, um, if there was a king and a priest and a rich man standing around a man with a sword... And each of those three men told the swordsman to kill the other two. Who would the swordsman kill and who would survive? Where does power lie? Um, uh, does does power lie in the man who who has the microphone or the man who owns the venue or, or the people who buy the tickets? Like, who's really in control of a situation? That's what Varys is trying to ask. Um, uh, uh, Animorphs, for anyone who knows the answer. No. And sword—it was rhetorical. No one wins. It's rhetorical, guys. Damn it! It's a riddle without an answer, or rather, too many answers. I mean, I guess the real answer is that it's complicated, isn't it? It depends on the situation. But there's a cool sort of answer at the end of the chapter, I think. But um, oh, and Varys says, uh, Varys uses the term "no one." The swordsman is no one, which is such an evocative term, given to the faceless men are described as no one, and they are the dealers of death just like the swordsman in this riddle is the dealer of death Um, and they're basically saying that, like, well, you know, if the power comes from the person who has the sword if the person who has the power to kill Ned Stark is the man with the sword um, but then they're saying that, well, no, it's about the king who ordered the swordsman to kill Ned Stark but, you know, why does the swordsman obey a 13-year-old king, Joffrey? Well, because King Joffrey has other swordsmen in his employ who will, you know, arrest the first swordsman if he doesn't obey, but, like, you know, is it all swords all the way down? Like, how does this work? Why are all these swordsmen obeying the laws of the king? You know, is it the High Septon? Does the Pope really control things? Who's really in command of this whole political situation? Is it another, Varus asks. And again, I think this is screaming Littlefinger. Like, recall that, you know, it was Littlefinger who set up Tyrion for the purported, uh, the attempted murder of Bran Stark was set up by uh, Littlefinger. And, you know, the Valyrian steel dagger that was used to implicate him, um, you know, Tyrion knows that Littlefinger lied about that dagger to get Tyrion in trouble. So you would think that Littlefinger would be at the front of Tyrion's mind in this situation, but he just never really realizes what Littlefinger's up to. In the books, they really emphasize that Littlefinger comes across as like this helpful, harmless little dude. And I think that's why he's constantly underestimated, whereas in the show he's like, you know, ah, I will look and, you know, I'm, he's, he's, as, he's as sinister as any guy can possibly look. Um, but Varys' conclusion is that power resides where men believe it resides. Power is a mummer's trick. It's a shadow on the wall, yet shadows can kill. Um And, of course, that's... Foreshadowing of uh, the death of Renly, killed by a shadow assassin. Um, but then Varys says that oftentimes a very small man can cast a very large shadow, and that refers to Tyrion. Like in one of Jon's first chapters, Tyrion, you know, casts this great shadow, and it's the idea of you know the influence that one small man can have. But a very small man could also refer to Littlefinger, like, Little Littlefinger is haunting this whole chapter. He's never mentioned, but he is all over this chapter. Um, the subtext of this whole political conflict is, like, the broader conflict between, like, Varys and Littlefinger. It's like, you know, the, the meta-meta conflict between, like, Raven and the Great Other that, that looms over much else of the story. There's constantly, like, these layers of different political conflicts going on at the same time. But Tyrion tries to work out what Varys is really about. Says um, Varys says he's a servant of the realm. Uh, Tyrion compares himself to Varys, saying that, well, you know, I'm a dwarf, I'm a half-man, just as you're a eunuch, just as you're a half-man. Like, Tyrion's trying to like, connect personally with Varys, um, but Varys is not having that. Varys is too, uh, too, too elusive. Um, Tyrion says that he hopes to take a wife and sire a son one day which is such a sad thing to hear from Tyrion because something tells me that he won't get to do that anytime soon. Uh, he hopes that his son will look like his uncle, Jamie, and think like his father, Tyrion. Um, but, you know, Varys refuses to sort of get too personal. And so Varys is like... Varys talks about some of the issues of the realm at the moment. He talks about how um, Sir Horace and Sir Hubbard Sir Horus and Sir Hobber Redwine tried to escape from King's Landing because they're, like, hostages to ensure the loyalty of Lord Redwine at the moment. Um, I think Horus and Hobber are, like, the... You know the Big Mac Index? You know, it's like a measure of, like, economic, like, general sort of baseline of what's going on. I think in Game of Thrones like Horace and Hobber are like the baseline of like what the deal is in Westeros at the moment. Whatever they're doing is like a microcosm of what's happening in Westeros because like in book one, they're hanging out in the tournament, they're riding in the tourney, they're having a good time, it's great, great laughs. In book two, they're trying to escape King's Landing because oh shit, s- stuff's heating up, like we need to get out of here. And then by book four well, <laughs> in my book 4 they're getting wrongfully accused of, of fraternizing with Marjorie Tyrell as part of Cersei's like attack on the Tyrells to ring down the political superstructure of king's landing and Horace and hobbit just like oh those poor fuckers did not see it coming they have nothing to do with any of it and they're just like guys just let me go home this whole time they just wanted to go home but um but they kept in prison so yeah dire times in like the big mac index of westeros um so, yeah, so there's all this other stuff. And Tyrion's, like, not all this keen on this random stuff. He's just like, whatever, whatever. Um, oh, Varys mentions that uh, Timit, son of Timit, murdered a guy the other day. And Varys is like, you probably shouldn't let your dudes, like, murder people. Um, but Tyrion says, oh, well, you know, he was killing someone who was, who was um, cheating at gambling. So, like, you know, it's what, that's fine. The honest men of the city owe Timit a, a debt of gratitude. And you guys know about the theory that, like, Timot is yeah. secretly the heir to the veil, right? Like, it's this whole thing because, like, there's this there's this Aaron cousin who is, like, in line, who, but but, but his mother was carried off by the mountains mountain clansmen by one of the burned men, and so it's plausible that Timit, as a burned man, was that burned man, and so if he fathered this kid, then he actually would, Timot would be the guy. I think a guy made a video about that. Uh, Which guy? Uh, Yeah, probably no one good. No one. Yeah. Um, And so there's a plague of holy men in King's Landing, priests, preachers, and prophets. Uh, the three Ps and um, Tyrion shrugs and says eh, let them rant I don't care and Varys is like they're spreading fear man and Tyrion doesn't care and, and I think this is Tyrion's fundamental like flaw in his political calculus he, he, he ignores rhetoric and image and branding and I think the reason why Tyrion ignores image and branding is because he's an ugly dwarf man who everyone hates Like he's got, <coughs> he's got an incentive to try not to think about that stuff but the reality is that as Varys just told us Power is a trick. Power lies where people believe it lies. And so by, you need to control the narrative, the political narrative. God, this feels topical, in order to influence like what happens politically. Tyrion ignores that at his peril because ultimately Tyrion's downfall comes from negative public perceptions of him. People call him the monkey demon and they have put him on trial for crimes that he didn't commit. It's all about the image. It's all about branding. And Tyrion fails to realise that. Um... So, yeah, I am not interested in treasonous table talk, Tyrion says, when he should be very interested. And Varys says that Tyrion is as wise as he is gentle, and, yeah, I'm not entirely sure he's either. And so Tyrion sort of explicitly compares himself to Ned Stark, and he's thinking, like, you know, I think I'm in a good position right now, but, you know, Ned, as Hand, probably thought the same thing. Is Tyrion going to last? And he, you know, thinks about how... uh, Varys is probably in control of Jaslyn Bywater and, and, and then Tyrion goes and talks with Bronn and they talk about Timmet's murder of this guy and Bronn's like yeah you know T- Timmet pinned the guy's hand to a table with a dagger and then ripped out his throat barehanded. He has this trick where the, the, you know those, those ads on the internet like one weird trick to like get rid of your belly fat? Well Timmet has one weird trick to, to rip out a man's throat with, with, with his fingers. Um, which, which would make a cool, like, Westerosi banner ad, I think. Like, you know, timid space, timid space. you know, click here to learn how you can pull out someone's throat. That'd be, that'd be great. Um, and then Bronn says that he's hiring more men to Tyrion's personal guard. And, um, and Bronn describes his recruitment process. And, you know, in, in contrast to, like, you know, Janos Slint's recruitment process of picking his you know, cronies. Bron says that he basically, he meets a guy, and then he gives the guy a chance to kill him uh, while Bron tries to kill him, and, um, and Tyrion asks, well, have you killed any of these potential recruits? And Bron says, eh, no one we could have used. Um, so, you know, and, and then after that, Tyrion's like, well, you know, I'm, I've been thinking about these dead bastards. If I told you to kill a baby, would you kill a baby on its mother's arm? Um, would you would you do it without question? And Bron says without question. No, I'd ask how much. So Bron represents like the most like eh, pared down, horrific, like compressed idea of like the logic of violence. Like all that matters is who can kill anyone else. He represents that like bare logic. But like when he you know he asks how much, that offers an answer to this riddle about power. Right, the idea that money. Is, is the currency of power. Vera says that power resides where men believe it resides. And money is something that we invented as a as a representative of power, it is this totally artificial, totally arbitrary unit of that's power that's a buck you know if you have enough of them, you can start a private military company if you have enough of them, you can make yourself president. You can do all sorts of things with money and that's one of the potential answers to this idea of you know where power lies but you know of course that's not the only answer because George martin's obviously very interested in religion and he's very interested in you know crowns and thrones so all these different ways that that, that our conceptions of power are are harnessed and changed and transformed. So Tyrion thinks back on all this stuff that's happened in the chapter. He thinks about the murder of all of these babies and women, these bastards, these innocent people, um, and he thinks about the death of Ned Stark, and he thinks about the faces of Shay and and all the women he cares about, and he thinks about the cruelty of people like Janos Slint and the brutality of people like Bronn, and the terrifying terrifying calculus of people like Varus and Littlefinger and, and the last line is that he wanted to laugh, he wanted to weep, but most of all he wanted Shay. So I guess this chapter is about like the tension between Wanting to do the right thing and, you know, feelings of compassion and sympathy for your fellow human beings, but also, like, the cold necessity of, you know, violence and brutality and power. And this is all in the context of what happened in the last book. Because in the last book, Ned Stark came to the plate, he became Hand of the King, and he tried to be the, the dealer of power in a way that was compassionate and honorable, and he failed. So Tyrion's learning from that mistake, and he's saying, okay, what, what new strategy am I going to use? What compromise can I make between necessity, brutality, and compassion? Um, and he seems to be doing okay so far. He's surviving so far, but um, he feels terrible for the innocents who are caught up in the crossfire. And I think that's basically the central, like, tenet of Game of Thrones is thats that... Is that you know amidst all the power struggles that go on amidst all the religions and the money and the wars um what 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 about the common people what about the ordinary people who get caught up um no one sings songs for spiders so i think that's the episode I think that is A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 2, Chapter 9. Thank you so much for coming to this live episode. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You've been, uh, you've been amazing. Um, this has been really cool. Thank you to the Phoenix yeah, for having us. Opening. You have gone above and beyond. Educational evening. <laughs> um, have you ever had to impersonate a um, podcaster as part of the Line yes, of Duty before? Yes, actually, yeah. Really? That was like <laughs> No, they call me. I have a, I have a podcast that tells, tells my stories about in-between podcasters. That would be a good podcast. Um, all right, I think we'll wrap up the recording. Um, I think that uh, – oh, what should I say? What's the end spiel? Ultra uh, trip Dex, it's great. Like and subscribe. Uh, you actually should if, – if you want more people to listen to the podcast, you should rate five stars on iTunes. That's what all the other podcasters say, so I assume it's important. I I don't know. Um, But we're going to call it there. Uh, I think we're going to release this recording for um, everyone else, I think, assuming the audio is okay. Uh, But otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.